Welcome to OpenSAP Invites Thought Leaders, your invitation to learn with us on the go. Welcome to a special Thought Leader episode with Feroz VR, dedicated to the topic of lifelong learning. I'm your host, Elisabeth Riemann, and I'm truly delighted to share this episode with you. While learning is surely a passion that unites us all, we're also united through the challenges it can bring. Learning should definitely be fun, and Feroz explains how we can keep it this way, at any age and whatever phase of life we're at. And I do hope you'll enjoy this episode just as much as we did recording it. And above all, that it provides you with a new thirst to learn and succeed. Feroz VR is Senior Vice President, Head of SAP Academy for Engineering, and is based in Palo Alto, USA. He was previously Head of SAP Globalization Services, and then Managing Director of SAP Labs India, Feroz is chairperson on the board of Spezialistina USA, a not-for-profit foundation with the goal to create 1 million jobs for people with autism and similar challenges. He's also founder of the non-profit India Inclusion Foundation, which is bringing the topic of inclusion to the forefront in India. He's co-authored Gifted, a best-selling, award-winning book on people with disabilities. Feroz teaches personal leadership at Columbia University, New York, and writes for New Indian Express and Mint. Let's say hello. Hi, Feroz. Welcome to Open SAP Invite Thought Leaders. Thank you so much, Lizzie. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Feroz, I'm so pleased you accepted our invite to talk to us today about mastering the art of lifelong learning and really chat today about what learning means to you personally. Um, when it comes to my own learning goals, I have to admit that time management often feels like the greatest obstacle. So I look forward to hearing your advice on this later. And I think learning came easiest to me when I was still at school and the core hours of the day were dedicated to focused learning. I have really happy memories of my own school days. So for us today, as a very first question to you, I'd like to ask, where did you go to school? And can you remember your very first day and how you felt? Yeah, I mean, you're making me feel nostalgic, uh, Lizzie. My, uh, you know, I grew up in India in a, in a in a state called West Bengal, and my first school was in a small town called Kharagpur. Uh, and I remember the first day that I went to school, uh, my mom walked me to school. So the school was probably a few kilometers away. So he, she walked me to school um, and I cried so much that I, she had to walk me back. So I actually didn't attend my first day. I don't have great memories of first day, but I think the fondest memories that I have of my childhood and learning is that I was uh, surrounded by books. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've grown up with, and that's thanks to my parents, is they, was, they always told me that the true wealth of, uh, of a household is measured by the books in the house, not by the money in the bank. Mm -hmm. um, and, you, you, you know, that's a very profound idea when you grow up with that, with that concept that knowledge is wealth. Uh, so I've been surrounded by books throughout and like um, probably all children, I started by reading a lot of comic books. A lot of my comic habits were very local. Um, so, you know, we had something called Amar Chitra Kathas, uh, which is a very Indian 
um, comic uh, series. So I started reading a lot of that. I must admit, I didn't read um, Asterix and Tintin and Calvin and Hobbes until I grew up. Uh, they were too expensive for me to buy and they were more the international uh, publications. But I grew up in a books, uh, in a house surrounded by a lot of books. Um, the first thing that me and my brother used to do is to rush out of the house when the newspaper guy came in and we used to compete. We used to literally, you know, divide the newspapers half, half so that we can, we can read at the same time. So reading is something that I grew up with, uh, Lizzie. Uh, and one of your favorite books then from your childhood days, do you have a book recommendation? Um, you know, I grew up with Reader's Digest, which was a monthly uh, magazine. At one point, it was probably the most popular uh, magazine. And it was very unique in the sense that Reader's Digest focused a lot on positive news. Um, unfortunately, we've now got to a point where, you know, to get people's attention, we amplify the negative news. So I was very fortunate to grow up uh, with Reader's Digest. Um, and I still remember my father subscribing to Reader's Digest since 1964. He's probably one of the longest subscribers of the magazine right now. Uh, so I grew up with a lot of Reader's Digest. But in terms of a children's book, um, other than the comics, I loved, um, you know, Famous Five. I don't know if you've read uh, Famous Five. Yes, yes. So <laughs> Famous Five was one of the series that I remember reading a lot. Excellent. No, I think it's really special to think about um, childhood books that we love because I think they really stay with us into adulthood too. Yes. And I think often it's something that we like to share with, with children, with friends' children. And I know one of my favorite novels was um, Narnia, so The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And yes. even today, when I when I see that book back home on my parents' bookshelf, I still get goosebumps. And I just have very special memories about that book. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit now about some of your most positive learning experiences, both in and out of the classroom environment? You know, the what I've you know, seen um, over the last few of the last few years is that learning is a full body experience, right? Um, and, and sometimes we tend to look at it as from the lens of what have you learned in the classroom? What have you learned at work? What have you learned at college? But my realization is that learning is really a full body experience. Uh, you can learn um, while walking outside. You can learn. A lot of learning happens if you've traveled extensively. So I've been very fortunate to have traveled around the world. Um, and, and you know what, Lizzie, something that I found very interesting is now I've been watching a lot of documentaries and I've realized that because documentaries are real life uh, incidences, that's another form of learning. So you kind of discover newer ways of learning as you grow. But really, the one that stuck with me for life has been learning from role models, uh, you know, and role models could be your teachers, could be your parents, could be people whom you absolutely admire. Uh, there is no substitute to learning by seeing role models in flesh and blood. Uh, and, you know, that's something that I've took with me for, for even in my professional career, that I, you know, when I was heading SAP Labs in India, we started something called a leadership talk series. We have something called a code to success at the academy. And the idea is to get these real role models in flesh and blood in front of the people. And that experience sticks with you for life. I mean, 
what happens uh, today in a digital world is we have a massive digital overload. Um, so you can watch 100 TED Talks, but you don't remember anything, right? But when you've met a person, when you've seen his actions in real, it kind of sticks with you uh, a lot longer. Um, you know, there's a beautiful saying that when there is a wealth of content, there is a poverty of attention, mm. right? Um, so how do you get people's attention is by uh, seeing people in flesh and blood. Uh, and that has a higher stickiness than anything else. So I'm a great believer that meet your role models, spend time with them, and that is probably going to be the biggest learning. Yeah, and it's, it's really good to hear you say as well that this human connection, even in the digital age, it's still so important. So you talked a little bit about the Leadership Talk series. Where could we find out more details about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, many of them are uh, already available on YouTube. I'm happy to send some of the links. The Code to Success series, which we started at the Academy, is also available and distributed uh, on our Jam page, so people can go and have a look at it. But again, I think uh, going back to what I said, while they're all digital content, there is no substitute to in-person. So, you know, watching it digitally is probably uh, not the same as seeing the persons in uh, live in action, but almost all of what I'm talking about is available in digital content right now. Okay, so we'll share that in the show notes then for this episode. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Faroz, and I guess like anything in life, learning can have its ups and downs, even if we have the right role model to motivate us. And so I wanted to ask you, what have been some of the challenges that you've maybe come across and then learned to overcome? And what have those experiences taught you? Yeah, I think my personal realization over years has been that um, we all learn differently um, and we tend to be biased by our own experiences and our own opinions in life and the ability to have an open mind and to be able to change your point of views is extremely important. Um, just to give you an example, you know, um, my I, when I was probably a lot younger, I used to believe that, you know, you can change people, but uh, only later on, I realized that you can only change yourself. There's a, you know, there's a beautiful quote which says that our greatest temptation is is to try to change other people instead of ourselves. Uh, and so that's a fundamental shift in my own opinion that I have uh, gone in, you know, uh, that or undergo in the last few years. So the ability to change your point of views, the ability to empathize with the other is so integral to be on a constant uh, learning journey. Mm -hmm. And do you always manage that to kind of reflects on yourself the way you are and think you change yourself. I mean, it's wonderful advice. I just wonder how it easy is in practice. It's extremely hard. Uh, you know, that's probably hardest thing to do because as humans, we all have the blind spot. Uh, we all want to believe that our point of views are the correct one. And especially um, in a digital world that we live in, we tend to follow our friends, follow the same kind of people, be in the same communities. And that can have an effect on the so-called eco chamber, right? We, we are hearing the same things and we have less and less uh, understanding of the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and unless we make a conscious effort 
to really see another's point of view, I think we will not make uh, progress. And, and, and as you see, we're probably living in one of the most polarized times of our lifetime. And that is because we are unable to see another person's point of view. Uh, and I think it takes a high amount of self-awareness, a high amount of humility. I think humility mm-hmm. is so important to say, maybe I don't know enough. Maybe the other person is right. And that is something that has to come from deep inside you. Uh, that comes from self-awareness. That's amazing. And I think we realize then that we're all a work in progress and we need to be more humble and to look at someone else's perspective. Um, yes, yes. So for us, if I turn our conversation now on to how we learn, how can we exactly master the art of lifelong learning? You've written a really wonderful article in Mint about the art of lifelong learning, and I really enjoyed it. And so I wanted to ask you today, what prompted you to write this article? Very good question. I think um, let me go back to the why I wrote it, not so much about what I wrote it. Um, And, you know, I've been in the learning space for uh, at least from an organization perspective in the last one year. And I was trying to understand how does learning work? Um, And my big realization was that we tend to focus a lot on knowledge, but not on the application of knowledge. And that's the fundamental flaw that I see. So for example, uh, people go for leadership trainings, right? And and leadership is a multi-billion dollar industry around the world. But really attending a three-day leadership program doesn't give you any desired outcome unless you've practiced what you've learned. So knowledge by itself is useless unless you've applied it. Right. And so that led to a big question about how do you become a lifelong learner? How do you master it? And mastery is all about practice. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I said, you know, let's look at the masters. And I'm using the word masters as really the ones who have the top of the game, you know, whether it's a Roger Federer, who's the best best tennis player. And you realize that, you know, Roger Federer doesn't just attend uh, tennis classes on YouTube. He, he practices, <laughs> he, he, he just practices 20 hours a day. And that's how you master your backhand and your forehand. And unfortunately, in the corporate world, I found that we don't speak enough about practice. We speak about attending classrooms and that's and we put a checkbox against a training that we attended. But really, if you want to be good at something and it could be good at coding, it could be you know good at uh, you know making presentations, it could be good at any aspects, I think we need to put the spotlight more on practice. And I realize the reason we don't talk about practice is incredibly hard. We always want to tell the easy things to people. You know, human beings are wired to understand shortcuts, mm-hmm. right? We are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I kind of did a research uh, when I was writing my book on what is an interesting title of a book. And if you look at the data analytics, the most interesting title or word that you should have in your title is secret. Because as soon as you put secret, you have a hook to people. People want to know what is a secret, right? Mm -hmm. Because people are all curious to know shortcuts. Um, The most, uh, you know, there are books which says how to become a CEO in five days, how to do an MBA in six days, how to become a salesperson in seven days. And that's because we are all wired to know shortcuts. But in real life, there are no shortcuts. Nobody has become a CEO in five days. Nobody has become a great sales guy in six days. 
those things just don't happen mm-hmm. so i i've realized that we should really speak about the hard things mastery is about practice mastery is about doing something day in and day out for a very very long period of time and that is the one that motivated me to write this article about how to become a master and if there is one the thing i'll ask people to do is there are uh, two very interesting docu- uh, documentaries one is called uh, zero dreams of sushi this is really one of the most famous documentaries about a chef in tokyo uh, who makes probably the best sushis in the world um, and you know it's his life journey and it's very interesting that he's been making the same sushi for 75 years i think he's mm-hmm. probably now 90 years old and people around the world come and travel to have a sushi but the key insight here is he became a great expert a master by doing it for 75 years right there is no substitute uh, to doing something that you're passionate over a very long period of time and success is incidental for most of them they just did it because they loved it and and then they became famous so that's my key insight that mastery requires practice and i want people to tell that you become good at something only by doing it over and over again that's really good and i think you know it's as you said before we really buy into this whole thing about becoming a master at something within a few hours a few days and there really is no quick win right that's what you're saying essentially we're in yeah. it for the long haul if we want to do something well we have to put in the hard work we have to overcome those challenges and stick with it whatever that might be that's amazing yeah. very good advice i'll remember that next time i'm trying to make my sushi as well <laughs> i've not developed that skill yet <laughs> So if I do take us back to your article, though, on Mastering Lifelong Learning, it was published in Mint. And what I really like here is that you focus on five key steps. And I think that's really good for picking us all up and making us realize, okay, this is really doable. This is manageable. This is something that we can implement. Can you maybe talk us through those five key steps you identify there? Yeah. So as I said, mastery is is a long um, process, but the way to make difficult things easy is to break it down break it down into doable things so it doesn't overwhelm anybody and and the idea was to tell that anybody can become a master but there are uh, five steps that i have identified uh, the first is to have uh, an infinite sense of curiosity right which means uh, you are working towards improving maybe 0.01% every day right so if you again going back to the example of making a sushi you can say how difficult can it be right why would somebody make a sushi for 75 years because every day he walks up and says i can do it better than the previous day right so the first step is really to have that infinite sense of curiosity that you can do the same thing better and you will always find something interesting to do the next time so the first step is curiosity the second is really to use your workplace as your playground and the reason i say this is because all of us who are in the professional world spend at least 8 to 10 hours doing our job so basically the if you if you make your workplace as your playground you are investing that much amount of time right uh, malcolm gladwell said that you can become good at something by spending 10000 hours but for mastering you have to spend 20000 hours and there's a difference and you can know something in 20 hours 
but knowing is is not the same as being a deep uh, you know d- understanding it deeply or becoming a master so the so the second step is if you really want to do something where do you get those 8 to 10 hours the way to get to your 8 to 10 hours is make that your job mm-hmm. uh, then you get your 8 to 10 hours so make your workplace really the playground of your your learning the third is really performance which means there are some elements of that particular job that you have to categorize as performance because that is high stakes right for example when i am in my job you know when i have to present to a board member that becomes my performance that's like going on stage and there are uh, you know a thousand people watching you uh, so you identify that particular element and really try to practice it and become good at it right so really being able to break your task and identifying what is that one area which has high stakes where you need to really perform at your best so that's your that's kind of your third step the fourth is you know i spoke about it is really practice so how do i do a presentation well or how do i present to a board member you do it 10 times you do it 20 times you do it in front of a mirror you do it in front of the <laughs> team and you kind of prepare the various scenarios so practice is extremely important but the last one is extremely important and that is to be able to reflect and evolve and that requires a huge amount of humility you know when i do a talk i ask my core team members who are my biggest critics actually my biggest critic is my wife uh, <laughs> uh, but apart from her i make sure that i surround myself with critics who are able to point out the mistakes that i made so every time i do a talk or a session my team rates me they say feroz today you are a 5 out of 10 today you are a 4 out of 10 or maybe if i do a great job then they say you are a 7 out of 10 the ability to take feedback the ability to reflect is the only way that you will evolve and you know and and so these are basically the five steps starting from being infinitely curious to using your workplace for learning to really identifying what is that performance that matters the most practicing and then of course reflection and uh, evolving so that's mm-hmm. kind of the five steps uh, lizzy That's really helpful and I know I really like all the steps but out of all of them I think the reflect and evolve is just incredible and I think I guess that's really the most challenging one as well um it's quite uncomfortable to go there and ask for direct feedback um but I think that's a really really important part of the setup and, and mastering something as you say too amazing Feroz you're really well traveled and you're globally connected too you grew up in India You've lived and worked in Germany and now you live and work in the States. Do you think from your own experience that some cultures and some environments are maybe more conducive to learning than others? What do you think there? I think more than the cultures it is our surrounding that decides uh, your learning curve, your learning journey. As I said, all all of us have are born with uh, an infinite resource of curiosity. If you look at as a child, uh, you know, we learn a lot of things on our own. Our our maximum learning happens probably in the first 7 or 8 years of our life. Uh, and that learning is purely by observation. it's not because you've gone to a school it's because you are observing the surroundings and you have a, a great sense of curiosity unfortunately what i've seen is that you know our education system kind of narrows down our curiosity levels 
uh, and and you know our if you look at our education system it's probably a, a hundred years old and we were all trained to fit into the factory system where everybody is given the same information everybody is supposed to come out of the factory system with specific skills to do specific jobs so mm-hmm. in some senses we have kind of lost the ability to question things right we are all in such a massive rush of consuming things that we stop and we've forgotten that we have to we have to question things so you know some cultures encourage questioning um you know in some cultures uh, if your teacher says something that's the rule of the law right you can't question it mm-hmm. but i think cultures which encourage quest- constant questioning is you know allows people to flourish a lot more uh, and and forget about what happens in schools i think we as parents uh, you know have our own responsibility to provide a certain environment to our own children where they are allowed to ask any question and we kind of take them on a path of being a lifelong learner uh so it really starts in childhood and being encouraged to ask those all important questions both in the classroom and in the home environment too that's really good yeah and for us when it comes to education it's a different experience for all of us and i think there's really not one size that fits all yeah. so how do you suggest that we could encourage young learners who aren't motivated at school for whatever reason or learners who want to learn but don't have access to that school environment and education what what do you suggest there um you know i think we are probably making an assumption here by saying that the young generation is probably not motivated to learn i think it's the other way around they just learn differently right mm-hmm. uh, you know i learned um, very differently the young generation which is much more digital native learns very differently uh, but i think everybody is just wired uh, wired to learn so i don't see a problem there at all but it's it's the medium that we should be careful about a lot of consumption today happens uh in short forms in twitter and social media and we have to be very careful with social media i think like every medium excess of anything is bad right uh, so we have to be careful that our children and the teens are not uh, overly dependent on social media i i, I can go to the extent of saying that social media is like the new tobacco right so we have to be very mm-hmm. careful in how much we consume through social media i think the biggest challenge with social media is that uh, our attention spans have dramatically reduced uh, you know there is a research which shows that the average attention span is today less than 7 uh, seconds which means that we are consuming in very short bites of content uh, and attention is incredibly important mastery requires you to ha- be attentive for a very long period of time uh, so let's let's ensure that the current generation doesn't lose the art of focus doesn't lose the art of you know reading something for a long period of time and so that's what we should be careful about because if they are entirely dependent on short uh, you know spurts of information then we are responsible for not having given them the experience of getting deep into something i think the you know the biggest challenge right now is to go 
into something with deep understanding. I think that's what is uh, is missing today. And the way to do it is, uh, you know, the physical books have not lost its charm at all. Uh, you know, people have written the obituary of a book many times, and I can tell mm-hmm. you the book has its place. It will remain continuing to have its place. Give children physical books to read because number one, there is no diversion. You know, there are no ads popping up in a physical book. People have to stay with the book for a long period of time. So I think those are very simple techniques to allow people to focus and have uh, longer attention spans. That's really good. And as a book lover myself, I just love hearing you say that the book is is really here to stay because I think it really deserves to have that place in each of our homes. And I think there are so many special qualities about holding a book in your hands, going to a library. Um, and I used to love those pop-up books and things you can get for children where it's really interactive. And um, I would really like to see that we all get back to our, our love of books. That would be a very positive development, I think, for society overall. So I also want to ask you about uh, learning for inclusion in our society and how maybe opening the door to learning opportunities to those with disabilities, to those who learning maybe is a bit of a struggle. How important is that and how can we all make that easy that our society is a much more inclusive one? Yeah, I think I'll first define the word inclusion because it's a very, very broad topic. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my time focusing on disability because of my personal situation at home. But I think inclusion is not just about disability. Inclusion is about everything. It could be gender, it could be race. But if I have to simplify the definition of inclusion at the lowest common denominator, I would say inclusion is building a world where nobody's left behind. Right. That for me is inclusion. So irrespective of your financial means, irrespective of which part of the world you are born, irrespective of your disability, irrespective of your race, I think everybody can learn and everybody should learn. And the reason is pretty simple. We live in a knowledge economy. The only thing that matters is the knowledge. And we are it is our moral obligation to provide everybody with a opportunity to learn. And so we have to start making two fundamental assumptions, Lizzie. And this is what I tell educators around the world. The first thing is look at a learner as somebody who can learn, but at his own pace. Uh, And so you don't have to decide the pace. A lot of times the educators decide the pace. You have to learn this and finish so many grades. Uh, But no, let the learner learn at its own pace. And second, Assume that everybody can reach the destination. You know, we today live in a world where it's a rat race. You know, you decide who comes first, who has the highest grade. Honestly, in, 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 in your lifelong journey, and when you look back, you'll realize your grades in kindergarten didn't really mean much. Uh, or for that matter, in your college, really had no correlation to long-term success. <clears throat> In fact, there's a beautiful study done by Angela Duckworth. She wrote a book called Grit, and she did a study amongst these school children. And she said, let's me try to predict who's going to be the most successful in my classroom. So assuming you have, say, 40 children, and you say, let me predict 20 years from now, who would be the most successful? Of course, when I use the word success, you know, you have to define what success is. But let's assume success from an external point of view. 
And she figured out that it has nothing to do with your school grades. It has nothing to do with your financial means. It has nothing to do with your background. And the only characteristic that has the highest probability of success is grit. Grit mm-hmm. is nothing but your passion to do something and your perseverance, which means have you done it long enough? So really grit and perseverance. And that's one of the distinguishing factors that, that lead to success. Only grit, because grit is defined as passion plus perseverance, Mm -hmm. which means that are you doing something that you are passionate enough and are you doing it for a very long period of time? So which means that if you say my passion is writing, have you done writing for 20 years? If you say your passion is, you know, running, have you done running for 20 years? If you say your passion is coding, have you done coding for 20 years? So the only measure of success, scientifically proven, is just one characteristic, and that is grit. So, but we teach our children for everything except grit. We are all talking about short-term success. You know, how do you ace your exam? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but the only characteristic that matters is you know, are you following your passions for a very long period of time? And here, duration is very important because, you know, you will go through your ups and downs. You will face failures. But the Uh ability to come back again and do it over and over again is what makes you successful. Uh And hearing you talk like that and and retrospectively as well about school and and the importance or lack of importance, I guess, in some cases of of grades when it comes to personal success. Knowing what you know today, would you like to go back to school and would you behave differently as a student? Would you ask more questions? Would you, what would you do differently, if anything? So my, you know, my friend Nipun Mehta, I'd asked this question to a lot of people, but I think one of the most profound answers that I've received, and I, I try to apply that in my life, is that what would you do differently, you know, if if you were in your younger self? And the answer is, when I was young, um, I thought success was dependent on hard work, su- success was dependent on commitment, dedication. So we put a lot of effort, I would say 90% of success was dependent on effort that you put in and 10% on building relationships. And now, actually, I've realized as I'm growing up, it's the exact opposite, that actually 90% is the relationships you've built. Only 10% is effort. And the reason I'm saying that is effort is a given. You don't differentiate on effort anymore. You know, all my friends are probably as hardworking as I am. They're probably much more smarter than I am. But the thing that I believe that I've done Uh, reasonably better is that I've invested in building long-term relationships. And that's the only thing that really is going to differentiate you from the others. So while effort is important, investing in relationships is more important. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's like you said at the beginning as well, it's the investing in, in relationships. It's that human connection, regardless whether it's digital learning or whatever. Yes. Um, and I guess it's just so important that bringing people back together, motivating one another and, and being supportive that everyone has different skills. Everyone has something else that they bring to society and being really accepting and inclusive in that respect. For us, if I can talk again about your writing, another one you wrote, Permanence 
is an illusion. And I, I really love this. And I found it so thought provoking. So I was wondering, do you have advice to us when we think we've arrived, we've got our dream job, we're living where we've always dreamed of living. We don't need to continue to learn. We don't need to continue to work on ourselves. How do we stop falling into that trap? What do you recommend we do? I think um, there are maybe two or three insights I'd like to share. One is, you know, the idea of permanence is is a Buddhist philosophy, right? Uh, they say that everything around us is impermanent. Uh, our lives are impermanent. Uh, our relationships are impermanent. Our bank balances are impermanent. The world we live is impermanent. Unfortunately, uh, human beings crave for permanence. It's the exact opposite. We want to have a fixed house. You know, the reason why everybody buys a house is because you want to have something that is permanent, right? Uh, we want to have a fixed job. Uh, it's, it's so much so that it becomes an integral part of uh, our narrative. I remember I was doing an interview uh, and the and the person, the interviewee said, Feroz, I'm looking for a permanent job. And I told him, there is nothing called a permanent job. Right. Because we have divided the world into permanent employees and, you know, contract employees. And we think that jobs are permanent. Uh, by the way, nothing is permanent. So and, and so that motivated me to write that as soon as you start aligning with permanence, you're going to get disappointed. And that's an illusion because your jobs may go away. Uh, we've seen in COVID cases that all our perfectly thought through plans have come to nothing, right? We built plans to go on vacations and travel around the world. So I've realized that people who deeply understand the meaning of impermanence end up being happier because they are able to navigate the complex world that we live in. So that's that's one point about permanence. The second thing uh, is that I believe that success is massively overrated. Right. Uh, and the reason I say this is because success is all about accumulation. Success is all about yourself, uh, is about your next promotion. It is about the next job. It's about your next house. So it's a very, very, uh, it's a very tiring process. And when it comes to success, we often shift our goalpost. Right. So mm -hmm. you, 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 you said, OK, first I want to earn a million. When you earn a million, you say, I want to earn two million. When you have your two bedroom house, then you say, I want to have a three bedroom house. So and, true. The, and so the problem is, if you define success with yourself and your materialistic needs, it's never going to be achieved and it's going to be incredibly tiring, right? You will burn out. Uh, you know, you become a VP, then you want to become an SVP, then you want to become a CEO, then you want to become the best CEO. And, and that's a never ending game. But if you turn that around, and you say, I would rather focus on significance. And significance is about others. Significance is about making others happy, others successful. And the interesting thing about significance is it's extremely regenerative. It doesn't tire you. You mm -hmm. want to do more. Because when you see others happy, you feel happy. When you give something to others, you feel like giving more. It doesn't tire you. So, you know, the two insights that I have is don't focus on permanence. And don't focus too much on success. Uh, focus on significance and success and everything else is incidental. Uh -huh. So they're great tips for really staying on our own learning journey, sticking with it and really yes. finding something that we're passionate about, that we have that grit for and really just rolling through the, the ups and the downs with it and really just sticking with something. That's incredible.
That's so motivating to hear you talk about how to master lifelong learning. Thank you. Faroz, I've really enjoyed our conversation so much, and I can think of a multitude of questions that I'd still like to ask on so many different topics. Is there a question maybe that I've missed, something that you'd still like to talk about that we haven't mentioned yet today? You know, the and I think you started with that question, uh, Lizzie, is that how do you find the time to do so many things? And this is mm-hmm. probably the most frequently asked question. They say, how do I find time to learn, right? And I think that's the first mistake, that if you have to find separate time to learn, you are never on the learning journey. You know, mm-hmm. learning has to be an integrated process. Uh, you know, while I'm doing this interview with you, I'm as well learning something new all the time, right? So I don't see this as a separate journey. Uh, And so you don't have to spend extra time to learn. It should be an integrated process. I think learning has to become like muscle memory, right? You do it day in and day out. It has to become like breathing. You you know, you don't say, let me find time to breathe today. It doesn't happen that way. (laughs) Uh, But the question is, how do you make it a muscle memory? And muscle memory is to practice. So, you know, very simple tips, read for 30 minutes in a day, right? Meet somebody interesting, you know, do things that you have never done before. Uh, And I think those are some ways in which you can make uh, learning a lifelong process. And more importantly, share. The more The more you share, the more you become better at it. I think if you've seen, learning should not be seen as consumption. Learning should be seen as contribution. It's not about what you learn, it's what you give back. So if you learn something, share it with others and you'll become better and better at it. Beautiful. Beautiful words to to wrap up. Um, We'd like to end these episodes um, to ask you which three key learnings should we remember after listening to this episode? What should we take away from today's conversation with you? I think the first thing is that you should do what you're passionate about, but more importantly, do it for a very long period of time. Uh, You know, the key index here is time. How long have you done it? Uh, because that's the only way you can master any form of art. So that's the first first important message. The second is that learning has to be a humbling process. It is a humbling process because you will realize the more you learn, the more you figure out how less you know. Uh, and the question is, uh, you know, how do you become humble? And, uh, you know, John Hennessy wrote this book called Leadership Matters, and he tried to put the top 10 characteristics of leaders. Uh, John Hennessy is the, uh, was the dean of Stanford, was the chairman of uh, Google. And of all the 10 characteristics, he put humility as the most important characteristics, right? Which again, correlates to learning. The most humble people also know how less they know. Mm-hmm. Right? So humility is an integral part of becoming a lifelong learner. And the last thing I say is that And this has nothing to do with learning, but the real fundamental truth of life is to accept what you cannot change, but change what you cannot accept. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and also for the many different insights that you've provided today. It's been an utter delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us on Open SAP Invites. Thank you so much, Lizzie. All the best and uh, look forward to our continuous conversation. Absolutely. Until the next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care. You've been listening to Open SAP Invites Thought Leaders with VR Faroes. 
Don't miss your next invite. Subscribe now. Give back. So if you learn something, share it with others and you'll become better and better at it. Beautiful. Beautiful words to to wrap up. Um, We like to end these episodes um, to ask you which three key learnings should we remember after listening to this episode? What should we take away from today's conversation with you? I think the first thing is that you should do what you're passionate about, but more importantly, do it for a very long period of time. Uh, You know, the key index here is time. How long have you done it? Uh, because that's the only way you can master any form of art. So that's the first first important message. The second is that learning has to be a humbling process. It is a humbling process because you will realize the more you learn, the more you figure out how less you know. Uh, and the question is, uh, you know, how do you become humble? And, uh, you know, John Hennessy wrote this book called Leadership Matters, and he tried to put the top 10 characteristics of leaders. Uh, John Hennessy is the, uh, was the dean of Stanford, was the chairman of uh, Google. And of all the 10 characteristics, he put humility as the most important characteristics, right? Which again correlates to learning. The most humble people also know how less they know, mm-hmm. right? So humility is an integral part of becoming a lifelong learner. And the last thing I say is that, and this has nothing to do with learning, but the real fundamental truth of life is to accept what you cannot change, but change what you cannot accept. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And also for the many different insights that you've provided today. It's been an utter delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us on Open SAP Invites. Thank you so much, Lizzie. All the best and uh, look forward to our continuous conversation. Absolutely. Until the next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care. You've been listening to Open SAP Invite Thought Leaders with VR Faroes. Don't miss your next invite. Subscribe now.